Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. just a moment in our service, Sinclair Ferguson's going to be preaching for us, and so we're going to turn to the passage he's going to preach on, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you'll find that on page 961, page 961. If you're using the Black Bibles, if you're using large print, it's 1142. And this is a long passage, but Well, I think you'll agree, simply wonderful words, a joy for us to listen, to read it together on Easter Sunday, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm reading from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. Well, let's turn back in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which David has read for us, page 961, if you're using the small print, and 1142 if you're using the large print Bible. I should say to your relief, it's not my intention to preach line by line 
uh, through this very long chapter. Um, although, as David was reading it, I must say uh, there were many verses where I thought, I wish I was going to be preaching on those verses this evening. But actually, I want to concentrate with you essentially on the section from verse 12, uh, with some allusion to the opening verses and to the end of verse 34. As you get older, uh, memories from your youth continue to flash back into your mind. And as I was reading this passage this week, I had a flashback to the young people's group in the church I attended when I was a young Christian. And in that church, in the youth group, there was a book that went the rounds and had a kind of almost cult following uh, among our young people, including myself, uh, called The Transforming Friendship. The Transforming Friendship. Please don't look it up and don't bother to read it. It had a magnetic attraction for us. The transforming friendship of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was, I was 15, uh, maybe pressing 16, uh, I was one of the younger members, but the transforming friendship of Jesus Christ had, in a sense, spread like wildfire among us and we were caught up in it. We didn't know, I don't know who recommended the book, but we did not know the profoundly liberal theology of the man who had authored it. He was a minister in London, doesn't make you theologically liberal, but he was a very famous minister in London in the post-war period and at the time, I don't suppose any of us had read enough Christian literature to know that the man's theology was wholly liberal. He didn't believe in the virgin birth. He uh, believed in reincarnation and a multitude of other false teachings. But there was something magnetic about his book in later life, it was a great illustration to me that you need to be very careful about books that have a magnetic effect on you. And I came to realize that there were theologians I tremendously respected and ad admired who had found the academic teaching of some professors in Europe utterly magnetic until they had gone back to their rooms and read through the New Testament Scriptures and come to the conclusion that this man's Jesus was not this book's Jesus. But I mention that because there was, a, there was a young girl, young student in our youth group who was really a very fine Christian, and she remained a very fine Christian. She married a very fine minister. Uh, marrying a minister doesn't necessarily make you a very fine Christian, but in this girl's case, she was certainly a very fine Christian. And I remember her saying under the influence of this book, the transforming friendship of the Lord Jesus is so wonderful. I would want to be a Christian even if Jesus had never risen from the dead. 
That actually was part of the motivation for the whole book. Uh, David mentioned this morning ministers today who think that Jesus' bones are somewhere uh, rotting in Palestine, and it's been not altogether uncharacteristic in the Christian church, perhaps even from the very first days, to believe that the really important thing is not the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but the transforming friendship of Jesus, some sense of spiritual renewal, even new birth, but the resurrection of Jesus from the grave on the third day, the bodily, physical, transformed resurrection of Jesus is not really so important. But it so happened I'd been reading the Bible since I was a nine-year-old, so I'd read 1 Corinthians 15 at least twice. And Paul's words in 1 Corinthians really struck me, although I didn't feel capable of engaging in the debate with older Christians than I was, that if Christ is not risen from the dead, then our gospel is false. We are liars. Our faith is in vain. And at the end of the day, as Paul cites here, a word from the classics, which may simply have been a, a, a proverbial saying then, as we say today, we'd be just as well to eat and to drink and to be merry, for tomorrow we die. And Paul makes this very clear for us, doesn't he? At the, at the very beginning of this section of 1 Corinthians 15, and then he goes on to speak about the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection in a way that I think you could quite easily slide over the fact that he puts it almost in the opposite way that we would put it. Then we would say, if Christ is not raised, we will not be raised, and that's true. But the way Paul reasons is very interesting and striking, and I think intended to be striking. If we are not raised, then Christ is not raised. And I think it's that unusual way of putting it, what seems to be the, almost like the wrong way around in thinking, that underscores for us that in this passage, the Apostle Paul is not simply concerned about my resurrection. He's concerned about the significance of Christ's resurrection for my resurrection and the significance of my resurrection in the context of what we might call here the final resurrection, regeneration, transformation of the entire cosmos. In other words, he's saying the resurrection of Christ is a much bigger reality than just the resurrection of a single individual. And what he does in this passage, which it places is, of course, tight and complex in its argument, is to provide for us the logic of the resurrection, the theologic of the resurrection, that gives us this tremendously expansive sense that David hinted at this morning, he has already hinted at in prayer this evening, means that 
when we come to understand the resurrection, when we come to believe in the resurrected Christ, we are caught up into something that is actually of cosmic significance. And of course, in a world where with all the efforts of governments and education authorities to make us feel big and important and princes or princesses, with the corresponding effect that fewer girls have felt like princesses in the history of humanity and fewer boys felt like princes. The dignity that this gives to the Christian, the sense that it gives to us of our place in the cosmos is really wonderful to contemplate, and I want us to try and think about it for a few minutes this evening. One of the things that was happening in Corinth was a little like what my older friend said. Um, the resurrection isn't really all that important. There were people uh, either in Corinth or coming to Corinth, Paul says, who denied the resurrection. It's not clear exactly how they denied it. We know, for example, from his later letter to Timothy that there were those who denied the resurrection, not in the sense that they denied the resurrection of Jesus, but that they taught the really important resurrection has taken place already. Our regeneration, our resurrection in Christ, our spiritual resurrection. And right at the beginning of this chapter, the Apostle Paul patiently takes us through the significance of denying the resurrection of Jesus. The first few verses, he says, deny the resurrection, and we disembowel the gospel of an historical event that is, he says, of first importance. And then in the few verses that follow, in verses 4 through 11, deny the resurrection, and we reject the multiple testimonies of the early Christian church to having seen the risen Christ, including the personal testimony here of the Apostle Paul. And in this big section from verse 12 through to the end of verse 34 that I want us to focus down on, he argues that if we reject or deny the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and our resurrection, then we disintegrate the biblical teaching on the purposes of God for the cosmos. It is that significant. For the Apostle Paul, deny the resurrection, and your Bible begins to fall apart. It doesn't coalesce. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have an ultimate telos, an end point, a goal point, an end game. The resurrection then is absolutely central, he argues, to our Christian faith. And he, he wants to work with the logic of this, help us inside the, the mind of God, the purpose of God, what is actually happening in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, from one point of view, we understand that a resurrection, an actual resurrection, though Lazarus was in a sense resurrected, it's just a fact. The resurrection of Lazarus is not a gospel. It's an amazing fact. It's not a gospel. 
So what we need, Paul sees, is not just the fact of the resurrection, but the significance of the resurrection. We need to understand the resurrection in its own divine light. And when we do that, there are essentially two things that he emphasizes here. The first is in verses 20 through 28, 20 through 28. And that is what we might call the cosmic significance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then in verses 29 through 34, what we might call the personal implications of the resurrection of Jesus, the cosmic significance, and then more briefly, the personal implications. Verse 20 really summarizes what he's been saying in the first 19 verses. He's been arguing about the resurrection of Christ, but then he states his conclusion, which is also his presupposition. In fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the fact. The significance of it is in the words that follow. He has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And you're familiar with Paul's use of the terminology of first fruits, the Bible's use of that language belonging to the Old Testament law code, that the first fruits of the harvest were were not simply, as it were, the, the, the first things that came. The first fruits were the first fruits that were brought to God, indicating both that the harvest had begun and as an expression that the whole harvest belonged to Him and would come to consummation. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here when he uses this a pretty unique language about the resurrection as Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. That is to say, it's, it, He is the first to rise from the dead in this sense of being transformed in His resurrection. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he wasn't transformed. He was the same old Lazarus once they unbound the grave clothes, and he would die again. But in His resurrection, the Lord Jesus was obviously transformed in His humanity, and rose never to die again. But in that event, Paul is saying, he's not just, as it were, being raised as an isolated individual. He's being raised as the catalyst that will cause a final harvest of resurrections. You know, the early fathers used to say it is as well that at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus called Lazarus, come forth. For if He had simply called, come forth, all of the dead would have come forth. And there will be a day when Jesus calls, come forth, and all will come forth. And Paul understands that that then, as he goes on to say, will be the final bringing in of the harvest of which His resurrection is the first fruits. Or to put it another way, the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes absolutely inevitable the resurrection of all those who belong to Jesus Christ. It is both the beginning of resurrection 
and it is the first fruits of the final harvest of all resurrections. And that's why it's so central, because without this catalyst, nothing follows. Without His resurrection being the first fruits, there is no resurrection for us. And that's his point in saying, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. Because for Paul, it's implicit in the resurrection of the Son of God that this is not just the resurrection of an isolated individual, a single phenomenon in society, but this is a divine act that guarantees the resurrection of all those who belong to Him. Now, how how is it that that is true? Well, Paul explains it in two stages. First of all, in verses 21 to 23, he explains it by saying to us, we need to understand the resurrection of Christ in the light of the whole history of the world, and especially in the light of its beginning. So, he takes us right back to Genesis 1 to 3, to the creation and fall of Adam, and he puts it like this. He says, as by a man came death, and that death has passed to all of us, so in an antithetical way in Jesus Christ, by another man has come resurrection. Now, he develops this later on towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He develops it very specially in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Maybe it's worth just taking a moment to explain what's going on in Paul's mind. What Paul understands is that when God created Adam, He didn't create him just as a single isolated individual, but as the representative head of the whole of humanity, so that whatever Adam did carried implications for the whole of humanity. And so, you'll notice later on, he calls Adam both the first man and the first Adam. But then, interestingly, he refers to the Lord Jesus, not just as the Lord Jesus, but as the second man and the last Adam. The second man and the last Adam. So, how, how, do we, how do we work out the conundrum that Jesus is the second man, plenty of men in between Adam and Jesus, just need to read the Old Testament genealogies, they're mainly full of men, because Paul understands that he is, in history, the only man who has had a representative role for his people analogous to the role that Adam had, so that what happens in Jesus Christ has implications for all those who belong to Jesus Christ, necessary implications. And He's also the last Adam, because once Christ has accomplished His work, there is no further need for an Adam-like figure who will serve in this capacity. And what he's saying earlier on in the chapter is that death came into the world through Adam and has passed to all of us. 
all of us who belong to the Adamic human race. But what has happened in Jesus Christ, the second man, the last Adam, in His resurrection, is that that resurrection guarantees that the resurrection He has experienced will in turn pass to all those who belong to Him. And as it was true in Adam, so it will be true in Christ. First of all, it passes to us spiritually. Then it happens to us physically. Finally, it will happen to us eternally. In Adam, we all die in the sense, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In Adam, we all die physically. Apart from God's grace of salvation in Adam, we shall also die eternally. But in Christ, those who belong to Christ come alive spiritually, are raised spiritually, and then will be raised physically, and then will be raised fully and finally, eternally, to be with Him forever. And so, in a sense, just as the whole story of the human race depended on Adam's response to the gracious Father who had created him, so our eternal destiny depends on the obedient response of the second man and the last Adam, who in his kindness did what Adam failed to do and has undone what Adam actually did. And so, he traces this, you'll notice very beautifully, in verse 23, he goes on to speak about the fact that there is an, in, there is an order to what Christ does. So, the resurrection takes place in Christ not only because of His identity as the second man and the last Adam, it takes place in Christ because, what he, because of what He is doing and will do in history. And Paul takes this in stages. He says there is an order. You'll notice he uses that language in verse 23. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. And he kind of echoes that idea, runs through the passage as Christ orders history. And the order is this, the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week, the resurrection of believers on the day of Christ's return, and the resurrection of the cosmos on the day of Christ's consummation of His purposes. Three stages that begin with Christ's resurrection and end with the regeneration of all things, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And you'll notice that he then goes into this in a little more detail. In verse 25 to 27, I think, you'll notice what he says here. He says, Christ will reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. He will subdue His enemies, put them under His feet. Now, if you know your Bible well, that will kind of ring bells from the Psalms, from Psalm 8, 
What is man that you're mindful of him? You have put all things under his dominion. And that's really a reflection on Genesis 1, 26 to 28, isn't it? That when God made man as his image, as a miniature of himself, to be like him, to be capable of communication and fellowship with him, when he did that, he he made man in such a way on the earth that man's experience would, in a sense, reflect in miniature God's own experience as Lord of all things. And he gave him dominion. But Adam lost that dominion. And what Paul is saying is that Christ is even now regaining that dominion. When you think about the words of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, you should remember this. I think we might more readily remember it if it were translated, all dominion in heaven and earth has been given to me. We might think, oh, that's, that's Genesis 1, 26 to 28. That's what Jesus is saying. Doesn't Jesus have all dominion in heaven and earth because He's the Son of God? Well, this isn't about His dominion in heaven and earth as the Son of God. This is about His dominion, especially on earth, as the second man and the last Adam. He came to regain the dominion that Adam lost. And His whole work, the whole story of the Gospels, His battle against Satan in the wilderness, surrounded by wild animals. The whole story of his conflict is a story of him regaining dominion by undoing what Adam did and by doing what Adam failed to do. And then Paul says there is a second stage in that dominion, and that second stage is when Jesus begins to promulgate His dominion in the world by the gospel. David uh, cited in his prayer, I think, the words of the second psalm, ask of me, and I will give you, my son, the nations for your inheritance. That's what the day of Pentecost is about, isn't it? It's the beginning of Jesus claiming not just Israel and a few Gentiles, claiming the nations for His inheritance. It's about Jesus fulfilling His promise in John's gospel to go to the Father and ask the Father to send the Spirit in order that through the Spirit, by the preaching of the gospel, the nations of the earth might be brought again under His dominion. And when He has accomplished this, what Adam failed to even begin to accomplish in the garden. Remember what David said this morning? Adam the gardener, with his little garden. The whole world was good, but the whole world was not garden, was it? And he was called. I don't know how long this would have taken if Adam and his family had been obedient instead of sinfully dysfunctional but His calling was to turn this whole earth into a garden. And then, having turned that earth into a garden, what do you think He would do? Well, I think we know because of what's said here about the Lord Jesus. What is said here about the Lord Jesus is that when He has finished that work, when all things are put under His feet, then, says Paul, 
listen to this, when all things, this is verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then, now just try and take this in, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. Now, friends, our our understanding of the gospel needs to be able to take account of that. So, what does it mean? Does it mean at the end that the second person of the Trinity will subordinate Himself to the first person of the Trinity? No, it doesn't mean that. Just think about the language Paul has been using here. He's speaking about Jesus, the Son of God, as being the second man and the last Adam, come to undo what the first man failed to do and to do in obedience what Adam refused to do. And at the end, he will have done it. He will have gardened the whole earth when he's put all these enemies under his feet. However, he will do that. Then, when all is subordinated to the Lord Jesus Christ, just try and picture this in your mind. The Lord Jesus, with all those who belong to Him, will, as it were, come, they will come behind their new Adam, their last Adam. They will need no more Adam. And as He bows before the throne of God in our humanity, it would not surprise me but that he repeats the words he cried out on the cross, Father, it is finished. And then with him all creation will bow in adoration, praise, worship, led by him as our second man, our last Adam, and offer up what would a child What would a child do who loved his father, who had given him a little task to do for his glory and the child's pleasure? Would he not bring it back in love and say, Daddy, I've done it? And magnified a million times, that's what Paul is speaking about here. And he's saying all this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the seed the resurrection seed that eventually is going to end on that great day when this world under His dominion, when all those who belong to Him, who trust Him and love Him, and who, as the hymn says, will at that point be saved to sin no more, will be able to say, Amen, when Jesus says to His Father, Father, I've done it. We've done it. And we bring it back to you in our love and in our joy and in our devotion to you. Because now the earth is filled with your glory, even as the waters cover the sea. Now, very quickly, three implications of this that Paul draws. They don't sound immediately like implications, but there are implications written into them. Um, the first, they're in verses 29 to 34. The first is in verse 29, this very strange question. If there's no resurrection, 
why do some people baptize for the dead? Now, there's nobody in the world is absolutely certain what that means. So, let me just put that out. There's nobody in the world knows exactly what that means. I would suspect many scholars think that Paul is simply referring here to some rather half-witted idea that some Christians had, that if our loved ones have died without being baptized, then we will be baptized in their place. He's not approving it. Actually, he says he's talking about them. You notice he doesn't use the first person plural. He uses the third person plural. What are they on about? And if that's the case, then his point is simply this. Look, even these muddle-headed Christians who engage in this practice, and if that's the right interpretation, it's such a comfort to us, isn't it? Because our Christian world is full of muddle-headed Christians, and we are some of them. Um, then he's simply saying even muddle-headed Christians do what they do because of the reality of the resurrection. Why would you why would you be baptized in place of someone who was dead if when they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead? No, you only do that because baptism points to the hope of the resurrection. There's another view of this that I wish were the truth, but there's no way of proving it, and it's this, that what Paul is really asking is, why is it that when Christians have died, and some of them have died heroically for their faith, why is it that there are other people taking their place and being baptized in this great historical line of Christian believers? Why would, why would you be baptized knowing that there have been others who have been baptized before you who have tasted a martyr's death? Well, only because you believe in the resurrection. Because you believe in the resurrection. It changes what you do. And then he says there's another implication, and in a way this is more positive. He says, why would I face danger every hour if the resurrection were a lie I was telling? And he just mentions the fact in Second Corinthians, he gives this long list of the danger he experienced. He's really saying it's the, it's the reality of the resurrection that makes all the pain worthwhile. And without that pain, then he says, we are of all men most to be pitied. And then he has a third implication he draws in verses 32 through to 34. He says, why would we bother living the disciplined lives we live? if it were not for the reality of the resurrection, then it would be, well, if that's all there is to life. You're born, you breathe, you die. The world is running down. It's going to come to an end one day, no matter all our efforts. It's going to come to an end. It has no meaning whatsoever. It's all pointless. And what we are here on earth trying to do is to give ourselves some point, but that point lasts very little beyond our threescore years and ten. It's all, it's all at the end of the day disastrously sad. We love people and we lose people, and it doesn't last. We build things and we cannot keep them. 
And he's saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes all this. It makes us line up behind our fellow believers who have gone before because we have this glorious hope of the resurrection. It gives us strength to face danger because we know that the risen Christ is with us. And it makes us want to live now in a God-honoring way because we believe that in the resurrection, that's the only way it will be possible for us to live. And so we're those, as he says earlier on in 1 Corinthians 10, we're people on whom the end of the ages has dawned. That new resurrection life has, as it were, stepped into the present and changed the way we live now so that we can live now in a way that is utterly consistent with the way we live then. And if this is not true, he says, then our life is pointless and useless and vanity, and it cannot add up. The resurrection changes everything, and without the resurrection, life is short, death is real, and eternity is blank. And we have no real transcendent meaning in our lives or direction for it. I had a colleague once who uh, went to suffer for the Lord for a weekend in Acapulco. And when he came back, he told me this wonderful story. He met somebody in the church where he had been speaking, and he asked him what he did. He said he was a pastry chef, and he mentioned the hotel in which he was a pastry chef. I'll not tell you what the name is, except if you want to spend a week there, you'd better take out another mortgage on your house. And for him, this was the, this was the pinnacle of pastry chefness. Um, some of us love eating pastries. He loved making pastries. And my friend said, well, how did you become a Christian? Oh, he said, it's very simple. I was on the golf course. The hotel, of course, has a golf course and the phone rang. You're needed in the hotel. And the name of one of the most famous multi-multi-multi-millionaires in the United States was mentioned. He's in the hotel with his people, and he wants a pastry. And you're the man. Scotty's back to the hotel. What does Mr. X disguise the name because of the guilty party? What does Mr. X want? He wants this. So he makes this and sends it up to the penthouse suite. Ten minutes later, it comes down from the penthouse suite. That's not what Mr. X wants. Makes it again, sends it up. Ten minutes later, it comes down again. That's not what Mr. X wants or likes. Makes it a third time, goes up, comes down with this message. We're sending the jet to get one of the pastries Mr. X likes. And when we bring it back, you make that pastry. And they did. They sent the jet, the jet came back with the prized pastry. And you know what the pastry chef said? He said it was absolute garbage. Absolute garbage. And it made him think, is that all there is? You get your way to the top. Multi, 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 multi millions. It was, like a, it was like a parable of life to him, 
no matter what our success, no matter what we do, no matter how much we earn, where we live, it's as though what we want is garbage pastries and we don't have a taste for real quality. And it made him reflect on his own life. He'd reached the top. But he inwardly sensed he was at the bottom. And he began to seek. And seeking, he found. And in Jesus Christ, everything began to fit together. That's the meaning of this day. The day of resurrection, or tell it out abroad. Christ is risen. We are risen. We will be resurrected. All those who are in Christ will be resurrected. He will lead us one day in triumph to the throne of God. And on that day, He will say, Father, it's finished now. Now eternity can begin for us. And as Scripture says on that day, we will be forever with the Lord. This is the greatest event, really, in history, isn't it? And it's surely the most significant in our lives because it guarantees for those who are in Christ an eternity with Christ, transformed, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness will dwell, which it will be easy to love each other, easy to live sinlessly, easy to love Christ, easy to adore the Father, easy to praise the Spirit, easy to live forever and ever and ever and ever in endless privilege of knowing Him and being known by Him. That's our hope. I hope by God's grace it's your hope too. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a day this has been for us reflecting on the death of one who has been loved among us, but being reassured that Jesus knows and understands, that Jesus transforms, that Jesus makes our death the gateway into His wonderful life. We pray that this will be our hope and our comfort, that it will also bring us strength and courage so that we may be, as Paul says at the end of this chapter, steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Oh, bring it to pass, we pray, and help us to encourage one another and to say to one another with the apostle, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Give you thanks in His name. Amen.